Hey pals, it's Jason here for the February episode of A Brief Chat. For this episode, we are going back into the archives and stringing together several episodes from almost four years ago now. This is from 2020, but later in the year in 2020. At that time, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and was close to realizing that things were ending in my relationship, and just a few months later, I would move into a van and start traveling the country. But at this time, I was still living in Tucson, still living with my partner at the time, and I was still a practicing Buddhist, which I am not at the moment, although I think a lot of what I learned in those years informs how I live now. But I spent a couple decades practicing Zen Buddhism and more or less in the Soto tradition. And in August of 2020, I read a book about a very short book about the life of a Japanese monk written by that monk. I read it in an English translation and then decided over the course of seven episodes of this program back when it was just 10 minutes and it came out every day to read that book to you, the listener. So I decided today for this month's episode, I would put those episodes together. And so you'll end up with about an hour and 10 minutes of this book and some of my reflections on it woven throughout. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're doing well. And I thank you so much for listening to A Brief Chat. Here we go. I was reading this very, very thin book, uh, which came out in 1985 from the Zen Center of London, which is, I believe, what's it called? Uh, the Buddhist Society. It's It still exists, although they don't seem to have this book for sale. The book is called Pointers to Insight, The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi. And as you can see, I mean, it's if you're watching the YouTube version, it's tiny, it's very, very thin. And I'll just tell you, if you are listening to the audio version, it's very thin. And I was reading it today, read the whole thing in a very short time, because obviously it's not very long. And it really, it really kind of moved me. So I thought that we would just read it together and maybe I will add some little annotations from my own experience. Uh, I'm not going to do this in one episode. Uh, these episodes are still going to be 10 minutes, so it'll probably take several days. And we'll just do that, you know, maybe for the rest of this week, except for the poetry on Friday. And then if it continues into next week, fine. And if we're done, you know, in a few days, that's fine too. I'm going to skip the introduction, which is not particularly useful. I will just tell you that this uh, was translated by a guy named Jim Stokes in 84, and it's based on a lecture that Soko Morinaga Roshi gave in July 1981. Uh, and that lecture was published in Japanese in 1982. And then Jim Stokes translated it. And then in 85, this book came out. So here's the, uh, this is the, uh, when I said I was going to skip the intro, I actually meant I was going to skip the forward, um, which is by someone else entirely and I don't think contributes to the story. So this is uh, the introduction. So these are now the words of... Uh, Soko Morinaga Roshi. Roshi is the, uh, as he'll describe in the text, but Roshi is the uh, honorific title for uh, kind of a teacher or what we might call a master, a Zen master in um, the Rinzai Zen lineage and in some others. So he's 
he is looking back on his life, uh, you know, kind of later in it. Just a quick chronology of his timeline. He was born in 1925 in Toyama Prefecture in Japan. He graduated from high school in 1947. He was ordained a monk in 1948. He entered Daitokuji in uh, Kyoto, which is a, a temple, a training temple, in 1949. And in 1965, he took over a temple of his own after many years of, of study. So, now to his own words. This is uh, chapter one, the introduction. Today, both in Japan and abroad, there has been a remarkable increase in the interest shown in Zen. Abroad, the question invariably asked is, just what is Zen Satori? However, Satori is something only a person who has previously experienced it understands, and it's not something we can understand by just listening to an explanation. And Satori is a term we would probably translate as enlightenment. For example, there is a saying that only a parent understands parental love. However much a parent may try to explain his feelings as a parent to a child, the child cannot fully understand. He will only understand this feeling completely when he himself becomes a parent. Because Satori is such a personal and extremely profound experience, any verbal explanation, I might venture, would not help you to understand. With this in mind, Pointers to Insight, the name of this book, Pointers to Insight tells about my first experiences as a young Zen monk. The real purpose of religious training, whether we call it Satori or Anjin, which means to calm the heart and mind, it's kind of a synonym for Satori, uh, the real purpose of Zen training, whether we call it Satori or Anjin, is to gain genuine peace of mind, which ensures we live really fulfilled and contented lives. In what follows, the essential requirements for achieving this end are discussed. Uh, chapter 2, Thinking on Death. I was born in Uotsu on the Japan Sea and was a pupil in the Department of Liberal Arts at Toyama High School when the Second World War was at its height. At that time, high school pupils were exempt from conscription until they left school. However, when the war situation worsened, an imperial edict was issued summoning liberal arts pupils to the front. Apparently, the reasoning behind this was that whereas science pupils would make a positive contribution to the war by their future study of medicine and natural sciences, liberal arts pupils were, on the contrary, likely to upset the national spirit with their bookishness and argumentative theories. So a decree was issued that liberal arts students, like all others at the age of 20, were to be given a medical examination and sent off without reprieve to the army. And then, suddenly, the conscription age was reduced by a year, and we were to be off to the front at once. We all know that we will die someday, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps in 20 or 30 years' time. What makes life and peace of mind possible is the fact that we do not really know when. But when awaiting uncertainty, the arrival of our call-up papers... Sorry. But when awaiting with uncertainty the arrival of our call-up papers, we suddenly felt we were staring death in the face. I, for my part, had the feeling that every day I was treading air. Whether awake or asleep, I kept thinking about my own death in action, but it was too late to look for philosophical or religious answers to the question of death. I believe the young men who entered the services then and went off to the front found a makeshift answer to their misgivings by blindly convincing themselves that in the final analysis, it was a just war for which they could not begrudge the sacrifice of their own lives. I did so too. We reasoned that amongst human beings, there is always the exploiter and the exploited, and so also amongst nations and races, and that the economically developed nations of Europe and America had been exploiting the East for a long time. 
Our country had risen up against this and was waging a just and meaningful war of liberation from such exploitation, a cause which well merited, if needs must, our own bodies being smashed to pieces. So my senior and fellow school friends climbed into airplanes fueled for a one-way mission to certain death, and with their favorite book on philosophy, or Shinran's Tanisho placed beside their joysticks, went off to plunge down on the enemy ships. Tanisho, it says in a footnote, is a religious treatise of the 13th century compiled as a summary of the ideas of Shinran Shonin, founder of the Jodo Shin sect of Buddhism, by one of his disciples. Today it is one of the most widely read of the Buddhist classics. Back to... Uh, Soto Morinaga Roshi. Many of them were shot down and crashed into the sea before they could accomplish their mission. At the time, we were convinced of it being a just war that warranted self-sacrifice. But after Japan's unconditional surrender on August 15, 1945, we were told it had been a war of aggression and evil for which the leaders were to be executed. And, you know, one of the things that comes up when you study the history, uh, the recent history of Buddhism is that during World War II, uh, many Buddhists in Japan were active supporters of the war. Um, Morinaga was not a Buddhist at this point. He was still a high school student, or just out of high school. But um, many Buddhist monks and priests and leaders did support the war. And, you know, that's no different than happens in every country, really. You know, if the country rallies behind a war effort, usually many of the religious leaders will as well. It's the you know, it's when the Quakers decide not to go to World War II and get thrown in jail or sent to work camps or whatever. Those things are the exceptions. But by and large, uh, you know, religious institutions, which certainly, you know, Buddhism is in at least one sense, often throw themselves, you know, wholeheartedly into the into the war effort. Um, I think it's interesting here, and actually he'll get into this in the next chapter, the, the way that he was grappling with what his life meant at you know, he was a teenager then. I mean, he all of a sudden, and obviously this is the experience of many soldiers, I assume, you know, he all of a sudden had to figure out, well, my life might end actually pretty soon. Can I justify this in some way? Can I say that if I'm about to get killed, that it's worth it somehow? And, you know, are the people around me, what's the message they're sending? Well, that it's a it's a just war for these reasons. And certainly we did know we did no different on this end and continue to do so. Although I think maybe we maybe we care less about the justness of our conflicts these days. So we'll continue this tomorrow. Um, there are a total of 10 chapters. It's like, what is it? It's 59 pages long and we're already 19 pages in. So it's not going to take very long. And as he goes in here, I I just found myself moved again and again while I was reading this today. And I just wanted to share it with you. I, um, even if you're not a student of Buddhism, which I'm sure 99% of the people who hear this won't be, uh, I think there's a lot in what he says that at least I found applicable to the bigger questions of my own life. Uh, today we continue with this book, Pointers to Insight, uh, The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi. And this is definitely a sequential thing. So if you didn't hear the previous episode of this, you should go back and listen to that first. And we are on uh, chapter three. Here's uh, Soko. He's the younger person in this picture with his first teacher, Zuigan Roshi. This is chapter three, The Unchangeable. So he remember that he's gone off to fight in World War Two with other high school students uh, because the war was going poorly for Japan, 
and they eventually uh, conscripted liberal arts students and they lowered the age so he ended up going off to fight in world war ii and then he he comes back the unchangeable the end of the war found me still alive and i was soon demobilized somehow i got hold of a multi-band radio and listened to broadcasts about the german war trials even now i can hear ringing in my ears the echo of that voice pronouncing the words to be hanged Newsreels were also shown, probably a policy determined by the American Army of Occupation. I saw them on the fifth floor of a crumbling, fire-torn concrete building in a bombed street in Toyama, where the Daiwa department store now stands. I could not help but feel sickened by the sight of German generals dragged to a gallows set atop a large platform and hanged in the public square amidst the stares of huge crowds, and the corpses of the Italian leader Mussolini and of his lover dangling head down from a wire noose and then being dragged around the streets with everyone cursing them and hurling stones. One by one, we pupils returned to school clad in government surplus uniforms. But for all of us young men who had lived until then with no firm beliefs, the big question was how to distinguish between good and evil. Though classes were supposed to be taking place, factually there were none. If a teacher entered with books, someone would request, Sir, would you sit down for a while? And with him thus seated, the young men back from the war would in turn, from the rostrum, address the others. Quote, As luck would have it, our lives were spared, and we are back at home and at school. But what we believe was good changed overnight to evil. Who knows how long we shall live from now, but surely we want to live believing in something unchangeably good and something unchangeably bad, don't we? If we don't sort this out, we'll never be able to live with firm convictions however much we study. What do you think? Unquote. Thus we pondered and discussed day after day. We had a philosophy teacher, Tasuku Hara, who later became a lecturer of philosophy at Tokyo University. He was an excellent teacher who, I learned later, died young. One day, Mr. Hara, who was more like an elder brother than a teacher to us, said, I would also like to say something. And mounting the rostrum gave us the following extremely kind and sincere advice. Quote, the philosopher Kant said, even were we to pursue for our whole lives the question of good and evil, we would never find the answer. All we may hope to come by is a yardstick for good and evil. And that's the end of the Kant quote. This is now the teacher again. This might mean that judged by a Japanese yardstick, this was a holy war, whereas judged by an American yardstick, it was a war of aggression. I think, therefore, rather than seeking to label this good and that bad, you should devote your lives to the search for the largest possible yardstick which will hold good whatever the time and place and which will be acceptable to the largest number of people. However, since such a large yardstick is not something you will acquire overnight, I suggest you begin your quest from this very moment by taking up your studies again in this school. For all that, the debate went on and on, but at any rate, lessons were resumed. From that time on, I thought a great deal about the question of good and bad. I think it was not just a problem for young people like us, but also a problem for the middle-aged and old. We had all completely lost sight of an ethical standard. We were no longer even knew how best to bring up our children. At that time, my own situation changed greatly. I had lost both my parents at one blow the year before the war ended. The shock of my mother's death had proved too great for my father, who had already suffered a brain hemorrhage. He had a relapse and died in a coma the following morning. 
My three elder sisters were already married by then. One was living in Manchuria, one in Shanghai, and one in Moji in Kyushu, which is in Japan. As at that time travel was difficult, they were unable to attend the funeral, and so it was left to me to make arrangements with the help of relatives. My call-up papers had already arrived, and I had barely two days in which to rush the funeral through and settle my affairs before I entered the army. Returning home at the end of the war, I was faced with the problems of property tax and death duties. For generations, my family had been landowners and had let the small amount of land it possessed to tenant farmers. Father used to say to me, there is nothing more reliable than land. Fire won't burn it, floods won't wash it away, and robbers can't carry it off. So whatever you do, at least make sure you don't part with the land. But the post-war land reform program took the land away. There was nothing left I could trust. All I had believed secure turned out to be transitory. Even my parents, whom I had never expected to lose so soon, had died within a day of each other. Further, as a result of a post-war measure to freeze bank deposits, not a penny was available from the insurance my father had bought to safeguard his children in the event of something untoward happening. Yet prices rose rapidly. What could be bought yesterday for one yen cost ten the next day and soon after one hundred. As students in those days did not do part-time work, I had no idea how to go about earning money with my own hands. So the fact was I had lost both an ethical standard by which to live and the financial means with which to support myself. Thinking back and recalling the utter misery of that time, it would not have been surprising if I had joined some gang of criminals or hurled myself under a train. I would wake up feeling wretched, spending the day somehow without any feeling of fulfillment, and so the prospect of waking up next morning looked even more gloomy. Though this vicious cycle continued day after day, yet somehow I graduated from high school. But then, since I felt no inclination to go on to university, I just idled away my time, feeling miserable. After quite some while, it suddenly struck me that the real reason I no longer knew what to do with my life was for that as long as I could remember, I had just read books and theorized about things without ever imposing any discipline upon myself. So we are uh, continuing with Pointers to Insight, The Life of a Zen Monk by uh, Soko Morinaga Roshi. And if you will recall, these are, by the way, sequential, so you should listen to the previous couple if you haven't yet. But anyway, he uh, in high school, he goes off to fight in World War II uh, on the side of Japan, of course, because he's Japanese. He comes back. He is very disillusioned about good versus evil. Plus, he has lost both his parents. They die within one day of one another. And then because of, I, I believe, it's not super clear in here, but I'm guessing because of the transitional government, the occupation government of the U.S., he can't get access to um, the funds that he has, I think that he got probably from his folks, and also he loses the land that he owned, so or that his family owned. So he's essentially penniless. Um, he has no real prospects. And he says in here, you know, I wouldn't have been surprised if I'd hurled myself under a train or joined a gang or whatever, but he, he makes a different choice. So uh, we're on chapter four. It's called Suffering Brings an Encounter. Just to note that there will be a bunch of place names that end in G, the, the sound G, J-I, and that means temple. So when he mentions like Daitokuji, that's a big Buddhist temple. Suffering Brings an Encounter. Thus, a strange set of circumstances made me knock at the gates of Zen temples. Having visited some, a happy turn of events brought me to Kyoto's Daishuin and into the presence of Goto Zuigan Roshi. And remember, again, Roshi's the honorific for master or teacher. 
He had been Lord Abbot of Myoshinji and later of Daitokuji and had now retired. And those are like big deal places to have been the Abbot of. I presented myself before him, sloppily dressed with long, unkempt hair and wooden clogs on my feet. His first words were, why have you come here? In reply, I went on and on about everything that had happened to me up until then and about what I had been going through. The Roshi heard me out in silence for about an hour and a half without once interrupting. When I had got it all off my chest, he said, I've listened to what you said, and it seems to me you've lost faith in everything and everybody. However, training is impossible if you don't trust your teacher. Can you trust me? If you can, I'll take you on just as you are. If you can't, it would be a waste of time and you'd be better off going home. I think in our present, and this is now back to uh, Soko Morinaga, I think in our present society, we have forgotten that when it comes to learning something, trust in one's teacher is absolutely essential, regardless whether he be a Zen master or a university professor. So it was the first thing the Roshi emphasized. However, since I was completely good for nothing without integrity, despite the Roshi's venerable 70 years of age, I thought to myself, this silly old man may well have been the Lord Abbot of both Myoshinji and Daitokuji, for all I care, but the world is full of imposters in high positions in society. How can he expect me to put my whole trust in him? I have only just met him. If it were that simple, I would have trusted someone or believed something before and need not have come here. But I came here because I find it so difficult to put my trust in anything or anybody, didn't I? However, I knew that if I spoke my thoughts aloud, he would immediately tell me to go home since I was wasting my time. The most important thing then seemed to me to be allowed to stay, even if it meant lying. So I said, I trust you. Please take me on. At that time, I had no idea of the importance of the word trust, but during that first day, its meaning forcefully began to dawn. And just my own little insertion here... I totally get that idea. I am very anti-authoritarian. I, as I've joked before, I don't even like it when the GPS person gives me instructions. I totally get the idea of not wanting to submit to any kind of authority. And in this case, particularly the authority of someone you've just met moments ago. Um, trust to me is a very hard thing to, to earn and it's a, an expensive currency. But at the same time, I have been now practicing Buddhism for long enough that in that particular context, I know that most of what I know about this, you know, beyond what I've experienced myself by doing the practice, but most of what I know kind of, you know, academically speaking, or in terms of the lore of Buddhism, so on and so forth, and then, you know, any corrections kind of to my practice and uh, help along the way shaping my practice, all of that has come from, you know, teachers that I've worked with and, it has required me to kind of submit in a way that is uncomfortable for me, but I think ultimately beneficial. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I just totally, I totally relate, um, to his discomfort here. Come along with me, the Roshi said. And the first thing I was given to do was sweep the garden. In the garden with the 70-year-old Roshi, we both together began to sweep with bamboo brooms. The gardens of Zen temples are intentionally planted with all kinds of trees to make sure leaves fall continuously throughout the year. Not just the maple leaves in autumn, but those of evergreen oak and camphor laurel, which flutter steadily down in spring and indeed all the year. I had arrived in April and the garden was full of leaves. If we are honest, we have to admit that our innermost motives are often extremely petty. So while still thinking him a silly old man expecting me to trust him, I somehow wanted to win his approval. So I grasped my broom and swept mightily and soon had together a mountain of leaves. I asked Roshi where should I put all this rubbish, hoping he would see how good I'd been. He immediately roared, leaves are not rubbish. I started to say, well, that's all very well, but over here, and he replied, you don't trust me, do you? 
Since I did not know how to counter that, I asked, well, then where should I get rid of the leaves? You don't get rid of them, he roared again. So then I asked, well, what should I do with them? And he replied, go to the shed and bring any empty charcoal sacks you find there. Coming back, I found the Roshi vigorously raking through the pile of leaves so that any stones or gravel fell to the bottom. He then took the sacks and filled them to the very last leaf, packing them tightly with his feet. Hey you, he said, go put these back in the shed, they're kindling for the bath fire. When I carried the sacks back to the shed, I realized that the leaves were not rubbish after all, but I was still convinced that the remaining bits and pieces were. However, when I came back, I saw the Roshi squatting on the ground, picking out the small stones from what remained. When he had carefully gathered them together to the last tiny pebble, he said, Now put these beneath the eaves. And when I took them to where the raindrops dripping from the eaves had made holes in the ground and arranged them with the gravel which had been placed there before, they filled the holes and, what is more, looked extremely attractive. I had to admit to myself that the stones were not rubbish after all, but I was still quite sure that the remaining lumps of earth and scraps of moss could serve no useful purpose. But the Roshi just collected them together without fuss, placed them on the palm of his hand, and, searching the ground with his eyes, put them into the depressions in the ground, firming them in with his foot until nothing remained. Then he said, And what about that? Do you understand a little? Originally, there is no rubbish in either men or things. This was the first teaching I received at the feet of Zuigan Roshi. I had an inkling of insight, but unfortunately I could not see clearly enough to experience Satori, or enlightenment. The Roshi's words that originally there is no rubbish either in men or in things actually comprise the basic truth of Buddhism. However, at that time, I did not understand at all. And here, um, I don't know if you heard the episode a week or so ago where I had kind of made a spreadsheet. This is kind of at the end of my exploring Catholicism phase, and I had kind of made a Catholicism versus Buddhism spreadsheet. Not, you know, pitting them against each other as which is good or which is bad or whatever, but just which is more suitable for me. And one of the big things for me was that Catholicism, and not just Catholicism, but a lot of Christianity, starts with the idea of original sin. In other words, uh, Adam and Eve, they you know, fell because they ate the fruit from the garden and they were cast out of Eden. And as a result, we all start with this stain on ourselves that we have to go to the Lord for salvation from. And Buddhism, on the other hand, tends to start with the idea that all things contain Buddha nature, that we are all interconnected, that we are all already perfect beings. And really the point of, of Buddhist practice is to discover that to be true for ourselves and to discover the interdependence of all things. And that to me is a better place to start for me because I already have baked in because of my childhood and other things in my life, the idea that I'm not worthy of love, the idea that I am, you know, lesser than. And so if I have to then in my spiritual practice also like dial myself even further behind in the race, I find that very difficult. Whereas the idea that I, first of all, am one with everything that exists and that we all have Buddha nature, like the, the opportunity for enlightenment and realized perfection, that, that really appeals to me. And that's a nice place for me to start. Um, now he's he's quoting someone else. He says, How marvelous, how wonderful, all sentient beings are perfect and without flaw. Only due to delusive attachments, the truth cannot be seen. Unquote. These are the famous words spoken by Shakyamuni at the moment of his enlightenment. Uh, that's the guy we call the Buddha. In the words of a Chinese sutra, he said, I attained the way simultaneously with the whole world and with all sentient beings. Everything, mountains, rivers, trees, grasses, all attained Buddhahood. 
At the moment when the fog clouding his own eyes cleared, the enlightened one's voice, again, that's Buddha, which well, that's what Buddha means, actually, enlightened. Uh, the enlightened one's voice rang out, marveling, up until now, I believed all things in this world lived in a wretched condition of suffering. But now I see that all beings are Buddha and are without the slightest flaw. Not just those blessed with a healthy body, but those who cannot see, those who have lost their hands or those who are lame are also perfect just as they are. And now this is Soko Morinaga again. Every year I go on a lecture tour to Hokkaido, which is Japan's northernmost island. There a young woman who was an ardent Christian once asked me, Listening to you, Buddhism appears to teach only to let go of our desires. But Christianity teaches, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. This is a teaching which gives us young people hope. What does the Roshi have to say to this? I asked her, Will it be open and given regardless of the way you knock and ask? I said this because I believe that unless you knock and ask with a heart which is in accord with God's heart, nothing will be given you and nothing will be opened unto you. In the Christian teaching it is said, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. This means that though free to choose between this and that and to ask accordingly, it is God who decides what is to be given. Buddhism does not teach just to drop our desires, especially in the Zen sect. We also continuously knock and ask until our very bones are ground to powder. Buddhism also assures us that by repeatedly knocking and asking, we will at long last realize deep within ourselves that even before we get, began to ask, it was already given. And even before we began to knock, it was always open. And this goes again to that idea that you, you start off as an enlightened, perfect being and you, you know, what's the point of practicing then? Well, the point of practicing is because most of us don't realize that and act accordingly. We don't realize our interdependence on all things and act accordingly. And so the more we do this practice, the more we kind of bring ourselves into harmony with the world as it is. And we treat the world as it is, as if uh, our actions affected it and everything in it and vice versa. And because that i believe that that is true and again i don't believe that for like woo woo reasons i believe that because it it does seem inarguably to be the case right just scientifically speaking it seems to be the case that the the movements and actions of everything affect everything else and it's, so it's not hard for me to believe that what i do has an impact on the world i mean that's essentially karma in that sense right that the idea that our actions create the conditions in which we are going to live that that makes perfect sense to me because like you i've seen it play out in my life over and over and over again and so while i do have i guess what i would call a faith in the practice of zazen the practice of seated meditation and um in a lot of these ideas of buddhism it is it is and I don't even know if faith is the right word, but it is certainly, to whatever degree it is a faith, it is a faith grounded in the experiential knowledge of 20 years of this practice. And I'm not trying to convert you to Buddhism. You do you. It's totally fine if you're not a Buddhist. Most people aren't. And uh, that's cool. Buddhism is not really a proselytizing kind of thing. And and even if it were, I would not be doing it. Um, but it is definitely worth taking that quiet time each day to see inside yourself, see the nature of yourself and then how that is connected to what's around you. And, you know, even if you started with five minutes of quiet meditation a day, I think you would quickly find that it was quite useful. I think Buddhism kind of overlays on top of that, a useful system of ethics and some very helpful tools because over 2,500 years, people have been sitting quietly on cushions and, you know, have figured a few things out in that time. But whether or not you overlay Buddhism on top of that, the practice itself 
uh, is very, very useful. Um, I, I mean, again, I would recommend investigating Buddhism if any of this appeals to you, but uh, I think the practice is in itself quite useful because most of us don't spend any time inside ourselves. Uh, or if we do, it's just reinforcing negative stories that we tell over and over again. And when I say we collectively, believe me, I'm including I <laughs> in this. All this week, and uh, probably into at least part of next week, we've been looking at this book, Pointers to Insight. Uh, this is a sequential series, so if you haven't listened to the previous ones, you might want to go back and listen to or watch those. Uh, this is The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi, the, the monk in question. So uh, to the story so far, he has gone off. He's obviously he's Japanese. Or I guess it's, maybe it's not obvious, but he is Japanese. He's gone off to fight in World War II. He's come back very conflicted about good versus evil and also penniless due to some things that happened in his life. Then he goes and he uh, eventually finds a Buddhist teacher. And in the episode from yesterday, he met this teacher. He uh, gained admittance to study with him and kind of learned his first lesson about, although he says that, you know, he wasn't able to fully realize it or internalize it, um, about how everything is uh, imbued with Buddha nature. So here we are in chapter five, Trust working it out for myself without complaint. In a Zen temple, breakfast of rice gruel is followed by formal tea served in the Roshi's room. This is an abbreviated tea ceremony. After the Roshi has been served, the others also have tea whilst listening to the Roshi's plans for the day and remembering that Roshi is the, the teacher or master. When I first came to Daishuin, an old lady also lived there, Miss Okamoto. She was a graduate of the famous Ochanomizu Ladies College and for many years had been involved with women's education. In her 40s, she had become deeply involved with Buddhism and devoted to the Roshi. She gave up her teaching appointment to spend the rest of her life clad in simple working clothes and taking care of the Roshi's personal needs. Just the three of us lived together. So this isn't like a a full monastery where there are tons of monks. He's just studying with this Roshi and people living there are him and this Roshi and this woman. The Roshi used to talk to Miss Okamoto, but never said a word to me. One morning, probably taking pity on me, she said, and what do you think, Morinaga? Hoping thereby to draw me into the conversation. But before I could reply, the Roshi said, no, no, he's not yet fit to talk in front of people. From the Roshi's standpoint, you had first to know yourself before you were qualified to talk in the company of others. In Zen terms, this knowing yourself is called kensho, which means to have clearly seen into and verified one's true nature. And since I had not done so, I was not to speak. Once again, I was stung to the quick and thought to myself, this damned old fool. But I could not let him see how I felt because I knew he would send me home since no training could take place under a teacher I neither trusted nor respected. So kind of like in the last chapter, uh, Soko Morinaga is essentially concealing his feelings so that he doesn't get kicked out because he thinks that this is what he's supposed to be doing. He's just not sold yet on the guy he's doing it with. It was then that I realized that trusting meant trust without a murmur of dissent. I must say yes, yes to everything I was told. Therefore, even being told to do three things at once or to do something I had never done before, I was never, never to say I can't do it or I don't know how to do it. Rather, it was up to me to find out myself how to accomplish whatever I was given to do, taxing my resources and ingenuity to the utmost. The Roshi's first words to me about trusting one's master meant just this working it out for myself without complaint. Before, while my parents were still alive and in good health, I used to complain, I can't do it. 
I began to realize that what I had thought impossible was not necessarily impossible at all. It just meant I did not have the ability to do it at that time. If you have an ability for, say, 10, then you don't feel 9.9 is impossible. But the moment you are given 10.1 to do, you feel it is impossible. A person who always says immediately, I cannot do it, will only be able to work to 10, and in that case, there is no room for improvement. Never say, I can't do it. Somehow or other, at any cost, you must get done what the teacher tells you to do. And by thus taxing yourself to the utmost, you will exceed 10.1 and 10.2, and an ability to accomplish what you had never imagined yourself capable of will gradually develop. And I think here again, and some of this too, I think, is a difference in the mindset of Japanese Buddhists and Western Buddhists, particularly American Buddhists, where there is much more willingness in Japan generally to subsume yourself to the larger culture or the needs of a company or whatever it might be. Whereas here we tend to rebel more against authority. Although, um, yeah, we carry that out in some weird ways here, but I think generally speaking, you can, you can say that and it applies in this situation. I think that more Western Buddhists in this situation would probably find themselves pushing back against authority. There are many such... Oh, oh sorry. Uh, he says, But what was I to do should the Roshi say kill or die? What does trusting your master mean when faced with such an instruction? First, it is unlikely the master I trusted would make an unethical demand, so there is bound to be a deep meaning contained in his words, which I as yet failed to comprehend. There are many such instances in Zen texts. Quote, if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. If you meet the patriarchs, kill the patriarchs, unquote. And also, quote, if you meet your parents, kill your parents, unquote. Trust in a Zen temple means continually trying to gain some insight into what such words really mean. So during the early days as a novice, I did my best to accomplish whatever I was told or was given to do. But by no means did I manage to do everything competently. On my very first day, I was told to wipe the wooden gangways. I duly got down on my hands and knees, cloth in hand, swish left and right. But the gangways in a temple are different from those of ordinary houses. Idiot, how many days do you think you're going to spend doing that? I'll show you how it's done. Then I saw the Roshi on all fours, cloth pressed on the floor with both hands and bottom thrust in the air, speeding along. At that, scales dropped from my eyes. I had known nothing but theorizing, and during my high school days, I often spent the whole night with friends reading books on philosophy and arguing, talk, talk, talk. I now burned with shame because, factually, I could not even do such a simple job as properly cleaning a floor. Well, then fine, I'll put everything I've got into it, I thought. But I did not know how to set about doing that, either. Sometimes people would come to help with work for the day. When I saw someone sweeping the garden, I would rush up and say, I'll do it and take the broom from him. Or seeing someone cleaning the floor, I would try getting a cloth from him. I'll do it! And seeing another kindling fire to heat the bath, again I would try to take over his work. In the end, everyone would bark at me, You there! Why don't you stop trying to do the jobs of others and find something to do yourself? But I did not know how to be resourceful and work it out for myself. These days, too, when bright young men from first-rate universities come to my temple to sit zazen, seated meditation, the first task I assign to the newcomers is heating the bath. But the fire has been lit under an, under an empty bathtub so many times that I now query beforehand, what's the first thing you do when you heat a bath? Light the fire, they reply. Jolly well not. Fill it with water, they then reply. Just put in the water, is that what you think you do? Here they fail to understand, for it never occurs to them that the first thing to do is scrub the bathtub. So I explain that first they should clean the tub, 
then fill it with water, then check the water level, then cover the top of the tub with a wooden lid, and only then kindle the fire underneath. And of course, he's describing a traditional Japanese tub. But when I go to check how things are getting on, I find one or two large logs and lots of burnt newspaper. That won't burn. Use some kindling. But there isn't any kindling, they reply. Then chop some. I don't know where the hatchet is. Well, why don't you ask someone? Finally, they set about splitting kindling. However, as I half expect, the fire still does not burn properly. Peering inside, I finally have not removed the old ashes, so I ask again what makes a fire burn, and the reply comes back, a chemical combination of matter and oxygen. Where is the oxygen? In the air. Well, if that's the case, why don't you remove these ashes and let some air in? And while you're about it, you better clean the chimney, too. They duly climb onto the roof and clean the chimney, and on their way down, as sure as not, they tread on and break several roof tiles. However, I cannot laugh at these young people, because when I first came to Daishuin, I was just like them. So, we have been reading, last week we started this, Pointers to Insight, The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi. And uh, I recommend that you go back and listen to the first several episodes, because they're a sequential tale. And uh, in we go now with this one, which is titled Between Master and Disciple. This is chapter six. And he it provides a line of transmission. And there's that right there, if you want to see that guy. And then this is a picture of... Um, Siso Roshi, who is going to be mentioned coming up here. At the bottom of the chart, you will see my name, Soko, and that of my senior brother disciple, Seso. So, right there. Our teacher was Zuigan Roshi, and Zuigan Roshi's teacher was Sokatsu Roshi. So, uh, he's essentially giving the li- a lineage in which he studied. And remember, Zuigan is the old retired monk that he first began studying with, um, In this way, from master to master, we trace our lineage back to Shakyamuni Buddha, who is the guy we call the Buddha. Thus, in the Zen sect, the lineage of great monks who have completed the training and who have experienced Satori, or enlightenment in this case, is quite clear. Only those who have received Inca from their teachers as acknowledgement of their religious insight are recorded in such a genealogy, and so the transmission from a master to his disciple is clearly attested. In the Rinzai sect, there are two major flavors of Zen. The two biggest ones are Rinzai and Soto. Soto is the one that I practice. Um, Rinzai has, I I think it would be fair to say more of a focus on enlightenment as a, as a thing to do. Um, and also generally more use of koans, the like, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping, you know, those kind of, uh, Buddhist riddle things. Um, whereas Soto is much more concerned with just sitting. Uh, in the Rinzai sect, such people are accorded the honorific title Roshi. So, uh, Imikita, Imakita Kosen Roshi, sorry, was the extremely distinguished Lord Abbot of Engakuji, so a temple in Kamakura, from the closing days of the Tokugawa period, so the kind of toward the end of the samurai era. During the anti-Buddhist movement of the first years of the Meiji period, he made great efforts for the revival of a non-sectarian form of Buddhism. The layman Suzuki Daisetsu was an ardent admirer and wrote a book about him called Imakita Kosen. Uh, Daisetsu Suzuki, so he gave his name, uh, family name first, which is the Japanese custom, but you might have heard of D.T. Suzuki, a guy who early on helped expose Zen to the West, particularly to the United States, and that's who he's referring to there. Uh, 
The Dharma heir of Kosen Roshi was Soen Roshi, who was the first Roshi to take Zen to America, and who also became Lord Abbot of Engakuji. Some famous novelists and other distinguished people trained under him, and there he's mostly referring to members of the Beat Generation. One morning at formal tea, Miss Okamoto asked Zuigan Roshi, Roshi, who was greater, Kosen Roshi or Soen Roshi? Zuigan Roshi was a very solemn man. Zuigan Roshi is Moriaga's teacher. Zuigan Roshi was a very solemn man, not likely to make jokes. He replied soberly, Master Kosen was greater. Miss Okamoto then asked, Who was greater, Soen Roshi or Sokatsu Roshi? Sokatsu Roshi had no desire to become Lord Abbot of a famous monastery, and after receiving Inca, or transmission, settled in Tokyo and built a small temple in Yanaka, which he called Ryobo-an. There he accepted lay people for training. Very well-known men and women became his disciples, public figures as much as scholars and artists. Zuigan Roshi replied, Master Soen was greater. When Miss Okamoto heard this, she said, But Roshi, that's bad, isn't it? Doesn't that mean that the lineage is getting weaker? Well, then who is greater, yourself or Sokatsu Roshi? In a flash, the reply came back, I am greater. So up until Soen Roshi, the teacher had been greater than their disciples. Yet now, when he himself was in question, Zuigan Roshi replied in dead earnest that he was greater than his own teacher, a reply which greatly pleased Miss Okamoto. But when I heard her ask, Roshi, who is now greater, yourself or your disciple Seso, which is the other guy studying at the same time as the author, I almost burst out laughing. At that time, Zuigan Roshi had reached the pinnacle of the Zen world, having been successively Lord Abbot of Myoshinji and of Daitokuji. So in other words, he was the head monk of two huge monasteries. Whereas Seso, without yet any position, was caretaker of a small sub-temple within the grounds of Myoshinji where he swept the garden. Since I had then no insight into a man's true nature, but solely judged people by their social standing, I could not help thinking how absurd it was to try and compare Seso with Zuigan Roshi, and tried hard to contain my laughter. But without a moment's reflection, Zuigan Roshi replied, It is not yet known. At those words, the laughter suddenly died in me, and I felt tears welling up in my eyes as though what a really splendid, as I thought what a really splendid teacher I had. Although he would invariably take the hard line and say that fellow was not fit to talk in front of people, Zuigan Roshi always bore in mind a disciple's future development. He always took into account not just the disciple's present immature form, but also the form he was confident the disciple would have after one, two, ten, or twenty years training. And this was the implication of his words, it is not yet known, which struck me then so forcibly. Indeed, almost as though confirming his words, Seso succeeded Zuigan as the Lord Abbot of Daitokuji. I also trained under Seso Roshi, and he was indeed in every way the equal of his teacher. From that moment, I began to feel a deep trust in my teacher, but I still lacked the slightest understanding. When a disciple has seriously erred, the master may tell him to leave. If there is sincere repentance and the master's indulgence is entreated, the master may relent and allow the disciple to continue. The act of asking for permission to continue is very formal, the disciple prostrating himself and with head on the ground, promising diligent conduct henceforth and begging for permission to stay. Well, in my case, I had done something wrong, and Master Zuigan had ordered me to leave. But when I was went to ask his forgiveness and permission to stay, this was not given. However often I begged to be allowed to remain his disciple, he countered with a firm no. Finally, and now in real despair, I lifted my head from the floor and looked up at the Roshi. So he was prostrating himself in front of the Roshi. 
Encountering his stern look, a lump rose in my throat. I just stared back at him and out of the very depth of my being stated, whatever happens, whatever you say, however you try to throw me out, I'll never leave your side. Never, never. Thus, eye to eye with the Roshi, I saw a big tear form in each of his eyes, and without blinking, his eyes holding mine, slowly well over and flow down his cheeks. I was moved to the core of my heart by the bond that I felt with him. I knew that I was truly his disciple for life, and also knew that he knew it and was glad himself to have such a disciple. The relationship between master and disciple must be so close and so strong that not even a single hair can be inserted between them. It might be compared with sumo wrestlers in the ring, huge men weighing over 30 stone like Kitanoumi and Takamiyama, who only crash into their opponents with all their might because they have absolute confidence that the ring in which they fight will not give way between them. Or beneath them, I should say. I am sure that even a wrestler as skilled as Chiyo no Fuji would be hard put to do more than crawl on his hands and knees for fear of the ring breaking beneath him were he to set fight within a circle drawn on ice. Uh, where are we here? We're on chapter 7, which says, Teaching. Confident in his... Let's try that again. Teaching, confident in his disciple, the master packs me off. Significantly more confident than I was in the reading of that title. In Zen training, the I must at all costs be broken. The I is in capital letter I, the, the I, this I. But it is no good going about breaking this unbreakable I in a timid fashion. Nothing will come of the training unless you are the type who will dig in your heels and hang on, despite being beaten, kicked, or threatened with expulsion from the monastery. Just in case you are thinking of getting into Buddhism, uh, that really doesn't happen too much in Western <laughs> study centers. Uh, there's not a lot of kicking and beating going on. Thus it is said in Zen temples that there are three kinds of disciples. The top ranker who has fierce determination, the middle ranker who holds to loyalty, and the bottom ranker who clings to an easy life. The top ranker is a first-rate student and human being. Any outsider would readily sympathize with him in the face of the ill-treatment he receives, but the more he is ill-treated, the more he vows to himself, Damn it! He's giving me a really bad time now, but I'll show this, Roshi. I'll stick this out, whatever. I'll never give up until I hear him say, You've bested me. The middle ranker is the man who really wants to give up the moment the going gets rough, but who sticks it out because he feels he owes it to the teacher who has done so much for him not to quit. The bottom ranker is the man who thinks he will, and again, forgive the single genders, etc., etc. Uh, the bottom ranker is the man who thinks he will never go short of a meal if he stays close within the shadow of such a great tree. Of course, the bottom ranker who clings to an easy life is not just seen in Zen temples. He is to be found in all walks of life. Thinking back in this vein, I am sincerely grateful that my late teacher, from first to last, treated me as a first ranker. I think he would have probably treated me more kind-heartedly had he had a poor opinion of me and thought I would run away if not handled carefully. I would like to tell you something which has bearing on this. Amongst the schools run by Daishuin's head temple, Myoshinji, is the Hanazono High School, whose headmaster recently came to see me. There had been an accident concerning a pupil in the kendo section who had disobeyed the regulations and had climbed up onto the roof of a school building, or he had begun to make practice passes with his bamboo sword. Taking a step back, he suddenly slipped and fell and was killed instantly. The headmaster said that sensibly enough, the boy's parents had not taken legal proceedings against the school, but that even so, he felt extremely bad about the incident. Having heard these details, I said, as the headmaster of a school belonging to the Zen sect, don't you think it is a big mistake to feel like this? 
When you and I were at primary school, it was common practice that though their child was injured, the parents would apologize to the school for the trouble caused by their son's carelessness and for bringing the school into disrepute. Who do you suppose shows more respect for their child's character and humility? Or humanity, excuse me. The parents who come to the school to complain that the teachers are to blame for not ensuring the safety of their inadequate teenage son? Or the parents who come to the school to apologize because their young son has caused a scandal and given the school a bad name when he was expected to look after himself as a responsible human being? Please consider this very carefully and take a more positive attitude in the education of your pupils, bearing in mind the meaning of the Buddha's words that all sentient beings are originally Buddha. These were just empty words because my own teacher always treated me as the kind or these were not just empty words because my own teacher always treated me as the kind of pupil who would dig in his heels and who would respond the harder the training. And I am ever grateful for that trust he placed in me. I have to say I've read this story a couple times now, this this bit, and I still have more thinking to do about it. I can't tell if it's just um, a, a super stereotypically Japanese attitude toward what happened with this student or if there is a particular Zen lesson in there that I am just not smart enough to pick up. But if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear about them. Chapter 8. Money for the Disposal of My Corpse. This guy does not beat around with the uh, chapter titles. In this way, I changed from being incapable of doing anything to someone who, by and large, was able to boil rice on a wood fire, heat the bath, clean the toilet, and sweep the garden. I also learned other things, such as chanting the sutras and the prescribed behavior of a monk. After more than a year, one day the Roshi said to me, People, especially monks, should not live alone. It is bad to live alone. You need to come into contact with many people. Training as the only disciple under a teacher is very fine, but now you should enter a monastery so as to come into contact with others. There are two kinds of Zen temples, one where young novices live, train, and study, and the other where those who have completed their studies go for Zazen training in a monastery. It was decided then that I should train in Daitokuji Monastery, which again is one of the major ones. When setting out for a monastery, you take with you a bunko, a box or casket which contains the kesa, a robe, sometimes called a kesa bunko. It is a bit larger than a satchel. Besides the bunko, you carry your entire possessions in a strapped pair of bundles hung from your shoulders. These hold eating bowls, chopsticks, whetstone and razor for shaving, sutra books. Sutras are kind of stories of the Buddha and things he said, that kind of thing. Uh, and a rain cape and undergarments. You wear leggings and straw sandals and a wicker hat. Your robe is tucked up at the waist with a band. As I was getting everything together, the Roshi came in and asked, How are you getting on? Have you packed your bunko yet? No, I am just doing it, I replied. Fine, take the lid of your bunko and come with it to my room. My bunko was of sturdy cardboard with a well-fitting lid like that of an old-fashioned medicine chest. I took the lid to the Roshi's room, wondering what he had in mind. When I handed it to him, he struck, he stuck three 1,000 yen notes to the inside. At that time, 1,000 yen was still a considerable sum of money. He asked, do you know what this is for? I thought, pocket money? but kept silent, knowing he would get angry if I said something foolish. When I had first tumbled into Daishuin, and that's where he's studying now, and asked Zuigan Roshi to take me on as a disciple, he was already 70 years old. He had told me, I don't know how much longer I will live, and if I die, you won't be able to go on with your training. If you were economically dependent upon me, you'd be in a fix then, so you'd do better to find a younger teacher. However, when I told him that I still had a little of the money my father had left me and would not expect him to support me, he consented to take me as a disciple, and as agreed, he never once gave me any pocket money. But now that I was off to the monastery, I thought the Roshi had relented and was giving me some. 
His reply utterly confounded me. This is Nirvana money. You are on your way to the training monastery. It may cost you your life. Should you have the misfortune to die in a wayside ditch or in the middle of your training, this money is to ensure that your corpse can be disposed of without inconvenience to others. The Roshi was an austere man who never made jokes, and I was awed by his sternness. This is the money for the disposal of your corpse. But it also made me feel more determined than ever, and I said to myself, right, let's get on with it. During the war, when we students were leaving for the front, I had thought a good deal about death, but when the Roshi said, this money is for the disposal of your corpse, death in this case meant something completely different. It was not a question of my physical death, but of the death of I. However much we may argue otherwise, when it really comes down to it, we hold ourselves very dear indeed. Unless we undergo an uh, a training to wean ourselves from this stubborn attachment to I, our hearts will never open to see clearly. This is how I understood the Roshi's words with which he sought to spur me on in my training. These days, when I in my turn send a disciple off to a monastery, I now supply several 10,000 yen notes for the disposal of his corpse. Early next morning before dawn, I went to the Roshi's room. With your permission, I am now leaving, I said. I made my way to the kitchen entrance and stepped down onto the dirt floor. As a novice monk, I was not permitted to use the main entrance. While tying on my sandals, I was startled to see the Roshi had followed me. He was a proud man, not likely to come and see a young monk off. But now he stepped down onto the dirt floor and, squatting down at my feet, began to tie the cords of my straw sandals for me. Thoroughly embarrassed, I said, It's all right, I can do it myself, and tried to draw my feet away. But he firmly took hold of them. Come on, give over, he said, and having tied the strings, he tapped the knots. You are never to undo these. Of course, I would have to untie them to enter the monastery, but I believe the Roshi meant I was not to undo the bonds of the vow I had made to begin training. And so, with resolution so firm that it shook my whole frame, I bowed deeply to my teacher and went into the pitch darkness bound for Daitokuji Monastery. Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Today is Thursday. It's the sixth day of August 2020. We'll finish up the book we've been reading today. But first, let's take a look back at this day in radical history via the Slingshot Collective Day Planner and also the Certain Days Calendar, which I think I showed you upside down last time, but there it is right side up. Uh, a lot of things happened today. In 1945, the United States uh, became the first country in the world and still only country in the world to drop an atomic bomb on another country, uh, killing approximately 150,000 people in Hiroshima, Japan. In the year 1970, 300 yippies invaded and disrupted Disneyland, demanding the legit uh, legalization of marijuana. In 1975, 2,300 scientists delivered a warning on the dangers of nuclear power to the White House. Obviously, that worked. In 1990, U.S. Uh, or I should say U.N. economic sanctions against Iraq began. In 1999, Laura Whitehorn was released from prison. Uh, Laura was one of the people involved, along with uh, Marilyn Buck, in the uh, 1983 Senate bombing u.s senate bombing and in uh, 2009 in sydney nova scotia donald marshall jr died he was a, a micmac man a first nations person whose uh, wrongful conviction for murder uh, kind of exposed a lot of problems with the canadian justice system and its racism 
So that is a look back at this day in radical history. And now let us wrap up Pointers to Insight, The Life of a Zen Monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi. If you haven't heard the previous installments of these and you would like this one to make more sense, then go back. They're all numbered. This is, I think, part seven of seven. And uh, we're going to wrap it up today. So as you remember, uh, it's been a couple days since we did the last part um, because of yesterday's book reviews. But as you remember, uh, Soko Morinaga has, he's young, he's not a Roshi at this point, a, a Zen teacher or a master. He has just left his uh, teacher of up to that point, the only person he studied Buddhism with, and he's heading off to a, a big prestigious Zen monastery to start studying there. Chapter 9 is called Carrying Through with My First Vow. Arrived at the entrance to the monastery, and this is Daitokuji in Kyoto, Japan, I took off my wicker hat, placed it to one side on the dirt floor, and, crouching down before the wooden step, called out for admission. In Zen monasteries, the entrance usually has a dirt floor. From there, a few steps lead up to wide corridors to either side of the building. Though dozens of monks might be in training, it is as silent as the grave. I loudly called out the traditional Tanomimasho, but my voice seemed to be swallowed up in the silent depths. Then from the innermost part of the building, I heard an answering voice. Who is there? A senior monk appeared. Where are you from? He asked. With my head still bowed down to the floor, I handed him the required documents, curriculum vitae, my petition to be allowed to train in the monastery, and my pledge that once admitted, I would give myself to the training, even if it cost my life. And I stated where I came from and who my teacher was and begged him to announce my arrival to the Roshi. Please wait a moment, he said, and withdrew. I already knew one is always refused entrance on some excuse, such as the monastery is already full or this monastery is very poor and cannot afford to keep you. And I should remind you that uh, while this practice, I think, still does exist in some Japanese monasteries, uh, this if you decide to study Buddhism in the United States, what's about to be described here will not happen to you. These days I weigh 11 stone, but at that time I was a mere seven and a half. When the monk returned, he told me, you look too frail for the extremely hard training here. Better go to another monastery. There are about 40 training monasteries in Japan, but wherever you go, you're bound to be refused. So I took back my rejected documents and crouching in the supplicant's position by the bench in a corner, I continued to call out fervently for admission. When Bodhidharma, the 28th Zen patriarch after Shakyamuni first came to China, Tradition reports his encounter with Eka, who was to become the second Chinese patriarch. So uh, Bodhidharma is the person um, credited with bringing Buddhism from India to China. Uh, there probably was a guy named Bodhidharma. It's probably the case that the stories attributed to him are maybe an amalgamation of things that several different Buddhists did. But in any case, Bodhidharma is kind of the the famous figure who brought Zen uh, from the West to the East, uh, India in this case being the West. So now this is a story about Bodhidharma arriving in China. Ika arrived at Shorinji and asked to be accepted as a disciple. Bodhidharma ignored him. Ika continued to stand motionless in front of the entrance, waiting for Bodhidharma to acknowledge his presence. I think I said that backwards. This is a story of someone coming to Bodhidharma to be accepted. I think I said it the other way around. Bodhidharma was, was the, the guy in this one, the uh, the big guy. And there Eka kept standing day after day until the ninth day of the twelfth month. 
During the night, snow began to fall heavily and reached up to his knees. Then at last Bodhidharma turned around and asked, What do you seek? At the long-awaited words of the great master, Eka, with his voice choked with tears of gratitude, stated his resolve to practice. The incomparable, marvelous way of all the Buddhas is attained only by long and diligent practice of what is difficult to practice, and by long endurance of that which is hard to endure. Why should you, with shallow mind and arrogant heart, beg for the true vehicle and suffer hardships in vain? In order to, that's Bodhidharma speaking, in order to show Bodhidharma the sincerity of his resolve, Ika took the hatchet slung at his waist, hacked off his left arm, and proffered it to the master. At that, he accepted him as a disciple. That is why even today, nearly a millennium and a half after Eka's ordeal, begging for entrance into a Zen monastery is so extremely severe. I was well aware of this when I took up my supplicant's position at the entrance. I knew this was unavoidable, but I thought it was a matter of form and did not suspect the real severity of it. After a while, another monk appeared, armed with an oaken staff. You were refused entrance, and yet you are still here, an eyesore to all in the monastery. Please take yourself off at once. Although I had been spoken to politely until then, as I made no move to leave, the monk changed his tone. Oi, are you deaf or something? And with blows and kicks sent me flying out of the gate. When I peered back inside, I saw the monk had disappeared again, so stealthily, like a thieving cat, I crept back again and took up my position at the bench. This kept on repeating itself. At the beginning, I was able to put up with it because I thought it was a form I must comply with. But gradually, I started to get angry. They are laying it on a bit thick against someone who is putting up no resistance, aren't they? By evening, my anger had disappeared, and instead I felt utterly wretched and forlorn. I fell to thinking, what on earth am I doing, crouching in pain in this entrance hall, allowing myself to be treated worse than an old floor cloth? Yes, my parents are dead, but I still have some relatives in Toyama. I can always go home. I don't have to put up with this. I had left Daishuin, which is where he was studying before, with some resolution for entering Daitokuji. When Zuigan Roshi had said, this is nirvana money for the disposal of your corpse, my vow to continue practicing was so firm that it had shaken my whole frame. And when my teacher had tied the strings of my sandals, saying, you are never to undo these, I had felt more determined than ever and had said to myself, right, let's get on with it. That had all happened within one day. And now my resolve had already begun to falter in the face of the misery and turmoil which had welled up in me. I think that one's strength of will is extremely weak. I am saying this especially to the young people of today, which at this point was 1985. Until you have subjected yourself to some discipline, you should not put too much faith in your own strength of will because it soon falters. When I saw my will crumbling at the monastery entrance, I suddenly felt I understood the reason for niwazume, which is uh, the phrase for being kept waiting in the courtyard. Crouching by the bench on the dirt floor, your resolve is put to the test, time and again. My niwazume lasted three days. My face was congested with blood and all my teeth felt loose. The eyes felt as though they were starting out of their sockets, and my hips, twisted for so long, felt as though they had been wrenched out of joint. I had come to Daitokuji on the 1st of March, and it was bitterly cold that year. Shod in sodden straw sandals, the cold had risen from the tips of my toes to above my thighs, and my legs had become completely frozen and numb. I think it was an act of real courage to go on and on in this state, pulling myself back from the brink of exhaustion and despair to carry through with my first vow to practice, and it was this experience which taught me what real courage is. When I was young, I would sometimes pick a quarrel with someone to show how brave I was. However, fighting with others is not courage. It is merely behaving like a small dog with a loud bark. Real courage in this, is this enduring and holding firm in the face of one's own faint-heartedness. 
In order to learn the truth of this, it was extremely important that I was made to question myself over and over again why I was there. Why are you reading this? If it is just out of curiosity, you will have learned only about someone who lives in a different world from your own. Why I relate my own experiences as a young monk rather than discuss Satori, enlightenment, or the heart of Zen is because I hope you will find it of practical use in your dealings with others, in your daily life situation, whether at home or at school or at work. What I consider important is not that Buddhism flourishes or that the Zen school prospers, but rather that each individual lives a truly fulfilled and contented life at peace until he dies. So I hope that what is said may help you to find such peace and fulfillment. Many thoughts passed through my mind during those three days of supplication. The interminable hours made me think also of all those who come to practice in a monastery. They are from different backgrounds and come with their different innate talents, past experiences, education, and concerns. There would be a small possibility for any training in the monastery if each were to insist on having things run the way that suited him. And again, forgive the single-gendered pronouns here. In the West, there is the saying, new wine must be put into new bottles. I realized that if I intended to pour the new wisdom of Satori into my own vessel, I must throw away all my previous experience, knowledge, and social standing at that entrance, and enter the monastery as a vessel completely emptied, humble, and compliant. During the evening of the third day, the monk on duty came out and said, As you are still here despite being scolded and beaten, you show some measure of resolve to practice so you may come in. However, you are not yet formally admitted, so you had better keep your wits about you. Allowed in at long last, the room I was shown into was open to full view, but with a single wall and the sliding doors on the other three sides open. I put my bunko, that's his uh, box with his stuff in it, down by the wall, and facing that same wall sat Zazen. All I could see was that wall. As anybody might be looking in from the three sides, I could not relax. I was given three meals a day, and at night I was provided with a sleeping mat and allowed to sleep. I spent five days in that room, which made in all a period of eight days in which I kept questioning myself why I was here and what I was trying to do. Time and time again I had to remind myself of that first vow I had made to practice, and time and again I had to rally my flagging resolve and repeat that vow over and over again. To continue to hold to that first vow and to carry through with it to the end in the teeth of all adversity encountered is, I believe, an act of real courage. And now the final and very brief... Conclusion. Thus I became a monk at Daitokuji Monastery, and after 15 years of Zazen practice, I received Inca from my teacher, in other words, the transmission and the permission to teach. But that I continued all those long years of practice was thanks to what I had learned at the very outset, in practice, not in theory. And I think that's super important. Because Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism, is not a theoretical thing. It's not uh, it's not something you think about or read about, although you can think and read about it, but it's something you do. You have to do the sitting practice or else it none of it matters. At Daishu-in, I had learned the meaning of trust, and at the entrance, begging in Daitokuji, I had learned the meaning of that courage which has its roots in faith and which remains ever resolute and undaunted whatever the obstacle encountered. The great Japanese Zen master Hakuin said that nothing, let alone practice, is possible without the three essentials, a great root of faith, a great ball of doubt, and a fierce tenacity of purpose. The great root of faith means trusting one's teacher and the, tradi the tradition he represents. In the final analysis, it also means believing in the limitless potentiality which lies within oneself. At first glance, it would appear that a great ball of doubt is the exact opposite of a great root of faith. 
but it means to be at all times aware of one's own lack of insight and to harbor within oneself a great distrust of I, as in the capital I, the self. And fierce tenacity of purpose means to have the real courage to continue the practice. Without these three essentials, nothing will be accomplished. I learned the truth of Hakuin's words not by listening to sermons nor by reading books, but by practical experience. I am deeply grateful that Daishuin and the ordeal of Niwazume, being in the courtyard, taught me this, because without it, I doubt that the half-hearted young man in his twenties would have found the strength to persevere with something like practice in a Zen monastery. However much society may change, I am firmly convinced that Hakuin's three essentials constitute the enduring cornerstone of all achievement. People today have lost the feeling of trust in education and in their daily lives. Especially amongst the younger generation, it has become the general rule to criticize one's surroundings, to shirk one's responsibilities, and to continually change one's mind. And it appears to be the fashion everywhere today to pander to the young. School teachers think it is their job to make their classes as appealing as possible to their pupils, and today's parents think it is their parental duty to dote on their children and to bring them up with the least possible structure or constraint. But please consider, the society into which these children will eventually enter is not such an understanding place, is it? It is a world where everyone is concerned solely with himself. Far from being a world full of fellow feeling and mutual consideration, it is a society full of those who would rather gloat on another's misfortune, pleased at a neighbor's straitened circumstances. Ideally, of course, it should be otherwise, but unfortunately, that is the way the world is. And so when these children who have been educated by amiable, understanding teachers and who have been pampered by easygoing parents have to step into the world as it is, they at once become confused and despondent. How could it be otherwise since their upbringing and education have taught them neither self-reliance nor resourcefulness? I have presumed to tell of my own experiences as a young man because I would like you, and especially the young people, to consider this carefully. It will make me very happy if you find something in these reminiscences which will be helpful in your daily lives. <laughs>